Hello and welcome to an in-person Into the Black Archive episode because for the first time in in many a many a month I am sitting here alongside on a lovely sofa Owen Cranston Hello James Did you try and add the zoom lag to make it feel like it was the old days? What do you mean there's no delay here? when people ask where the episodes are. <laughs> <laughs> shh, shh. No one needs to know about that. No one does. But yes, we are we are both in I think I think I can safely say without, you know, breaking your privacy that we are both in Scotland now. Oh my god, they might find me now. They might all find me. All it's, 10 of our listeners. We are somewhere in Scotland. Yes, in a property. And we, <laughs> he, as, he, as opposed to I, I a to restaurant, say, he is lying. We are just sat in a grass field, middle of nowhere, Scotland, isn't it? There's, there's some Highland cows just going past. It's amazing, you know. With sound editing, we could be anywhere. In <laughs> truth, <laughs> you, you could just add a plane in at this bit, and we're at the we're at the airport. It's fine. <laughs> Oh, God. And speaking of being anywhere, where are we today? Uh, well, we are in colour Doctor Who, which is good. Yep. Uh, we're starting to get oddly used to colour again, because uh, we've now done our second season seven story. The seven part for season seven Silurian story that is Doctor Who and the Silurians. Yes. And my God, they've been on a weight loss. They've weight- they've- over time, they've weight lost so much weight. Yes, considerably. Considering how we see them here and how we see them in modern Who, mm. all of that sort of like excess ex- baggage, yeah, yeah it's, it's all, all gone. just gone. I think it's important to say actually that that the Silurians, in a weird way, are probably more known for their modern Who interpretation now than their classic Who interpretation. Uh, do you mean as in that, like their look? Yeah, I think more so the look, and because we had. Um, we had the Peyton Oster gang in the Moffat era. Moffat brought the Silurians in. Yeah. Made them quite a key part of the show. Just a correction there. Moffat didn't bring them in. It was in Moffat's series, though, wasn't it? It was in Moffat's first series the Silurians were brought in. In modern Who. Correct. But do you know who wrote that story? It, I can't remember who wrote that. It was a two-parter, wasn't it? It's um, What were those episodes even called? Because it was, it was episodes nine and ten of season five. Yeah. And I can remember... Oh, it's literally annoying me now because I know it's I know it's somebody who wrote the Silurian one. It's in Wales, isn't it? This episode. Yeah. So is it a Welsh writer? Is it Mark Gatiss who did it? No. No, it's not a well-known Doctor writer. Oh, Chris Chibnall. Yes. Chris Chibnall wrote the. Yes. Yes. In, in a, it was in a Chibnall episode. Which, yes, it was. Frustratingly, I'm actually I do quite like that two-parter, which does Ooh. which does push me. Against my usual anti-everything Chibnall. I, I think that's actually a surprisingly controversial opinion. Do you think? Because I've always not minded that two-parter. I, don't know, I, haven't I watched, thought the ending was really effective. I haven't watched it for a while, but I was watching some reviewers just going... F- doing a similar sort of thing which we're doing here, but on YouTube and with uh, newer seasons. And they were discussing that season and about how the Silorian one was just a bit... Meh. 
But it's been so long since I've actually watched it myself, so I can't really give a solid opinion yeah. on it. In, in reality, the, the funny thing is, I always thought the best part of that episode was was the theming and, yeah. and trying to bring the idea that, well, the Silurians are there, have been there for so long as well, they haven't even mm. and the Doctor is trying to be diplomatic about it until such a point where the diplomacy breaks. Which I think is actually something which Chibnall always seems to do well. Once you exclude the characters, it's, he always does very good sort of like scene setting. I'll, ag- I'll agree with that. I think I think I would refine that into more... Chris Chibnall knows what point he wants to make. Yeah. I, I don't think you could ever accuse him of not knowing what the point of his episodes are, mm-hmm. apart from Influx. But I think the issue that a lot of people have with the Jodie era Who and with Chibnall's showrunning of Who is that he knows what point he wants to make and he just goes so directly to it yeah. that... It feels like you're being bashed over the head with a frying pan mm. to say, here's the point, listen to the point. So we've got Dan, I forgot, forgot his name. Um, is Are we talking about, um, we're still talking about the Chibnall two-part Silurians one? No, on about um, John Bishop's character. Oh, Dan, Wok, yeah, Dan Lewis. And the yeah. Wok. Yeah, yeah, it's, Dan, it's um, Dan Lewis with the Wok and Carvanista's on his side. Yeah. And they're all saying... You need to accept that the Timeless Children is now Doctor Who canon. Yep. Which it is. <laughs> Russell, I'm begging you. <laughs> I'm well, begging you. Well, it was already kind of in the canon, which there's other Doctors before this one, due to a fifth Doctor story. Actually, no, fourth Doctor story. Brains of Morpheus. But if we ignore that, it's not the canon. <laughs> That's the trick. So then we can just ignore which... Um, for, I won't say lone, Empty Child. I know it's not that. <laughs> no, that's, a, children. that's another Stephen Moffat two-parter. If, if, we, ignore this, if we ignore that storyline, the Timeless Children storyline, doesn't matter then. We, we can just use the same principle and it doesn't need to affect anything. Shall we just, shall we just agree that we shouldn't bring it up in the future? Oh yeah, let's 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 just go there. Let's just go yeah. there. And about by we, I mean the people who make Doctor Who, as if I'm including ourselves in that <laughs> that collective pronoun that we're all under. Well, I mean, I'm I am very hard working on the um, the six year special, writing it out, going through it. You're proofreading it for me, so of it's course. all going well. Yeah, it's it's um yeah, going to be good. Filming in a filming in Bristol the other day, would you believe? Ooh. Patrick Harris. Yeah. Do you know something else which is very amusing? What? By the time this episode come out, everything we're saying about it will be massively yeah, out of date. completely out of date, yeah. It might even be out. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, my first initial thought was, yeah, but would Russell really release a surprise who? And then my second thought was, could we really take that long? Enough of the endless debate about Chimnall. Yes, and- timeless, you could say. Yes. Debates about Chibnall. What are our initial impressions on this story episode? So, yeah, Doctor Who and the Salarians, John Pertwee story, uh, second one we've watched. And the first, it's the first big one, I suppose, because Spearhead felt like a bite-sized introduction, yeah. really. It's four parts. This one is seven, uh, so it's definitely on the weightier end yeah. of the stories we've had b- before. And I think it it's good for a lot of the reasons that usually big Doctor Who stories are and also the same problems that uh, the, the big, big sto- Doctor Who stories do. It, have. It, it's the identical complaint which we've had for 
most if not all of the long stories in black and white it's once you get over that four episode mark and start going six and seven and eight parts even for like i don't get me wrong this is an excellent story i think we both agree yeah this is very solid it's an excellent kind of story but it just goes on yeah you, you have to think of it in terms of if you go to the cinema and watch a movie you're expecting it to be about two hours yeah. And in that two hours, you will get a pretty well-rounded story. Doctor Who and the Silurians is, I think, if you add up all the episodes, it's closing on three hours. Like, it's very, very close. For Batman. Yes, but that's the Batman. This is Doctor Who and the Silurians. So, yeah. you have to, so does it have enough story to justify that running time? Most of the time with Who in the classic era, not the case. Yeah. This one, I don't think it's like... I don't think it's like so bad where you could cut episodes in, in time. No, we, we've had episodes like that before. Like Fear of the Deep. Yeah. I think I think example. we're essentially agreed with Fear of the Deep, which we could cut out. Two full episodes. At least two episodes, and the story would be completely intact. Yeah. With this one, it just... I mean, even... I think you could have maybe got away with a six. Yeah. I think you could have got away with a six, and it would have felt pretty rounded. Because... I think there's just a bit too much padding in the middle. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of there's a lot of time that we dedicate to story threads that kind of drop off midway through and, and aren't really important in the grand scheme. So perhaps the script could have been a bit tauter, but everything is enjoyable, and so and so you don't yeah. necessarily want to cut things out too much. Exactly, like all the characters we're dealing with are fun. If a little Max esque to point starts getting annoying. Yes, we have a particular one, uh, which I'm going to love talking about. <laughs> but, but can I just say something, though, about this episode? Like, it's all good and all that stuff. Mm. But this is season is for great reboot of Who, right? Yes, the super massive Doctor Who is back. Yes. So let me speak to you about this episode and previous episodes. What was one of the complaints about repetitive stories types in black and white, particularly um, Based on the, the Trout and stuff. South Trout and stuff. Uh, based on the Siege. Yes. So we've rebooted it and already one episode in we're going, one story in, we're going back to Based on the Siege. The reason I'm going to let this off yeah. is that with most of the other Based on the Siege stories, you've got no sense of scaling of what was going on outside. Yeah. The Silurian episode makes it very, very clear that there's scaling going on mm-hmm. outside. Um, I've just been distracted. There's a gorgeous rainbow that's just popped up. Oh yeah, it's actually really nice. <laughs> we get we get out my window, really nice rainbows. That's lovely. Yeah, that is. I completely love. It's completely lost my train of thought, but it's a lovely rainbow. Yeah, you don't you don't see much of those in London. You don't see that much of them down south at all. I find no. I, the north just has more exciting weather. Exactly, that's what you're discovering, isn't it? It's definitely unpredictable weather. You yeah, never quite know what you're gonna get. Right, scaling into the... (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, the reason why I like it is because you get all of those cutaway shots. For example, um, Master's going to the train station. Yeah, We see stuff outside. We get shots in London. Mm -hmm. So we get a sense of what's going on outside the base. We get a sense of what the stakes are outside the base. One of the big issues you have with... I'm trying to think of an example... The moon base, yeah. for example, just to throw one under the bus, is you'd have characters say, oh, there are now terrible food shortages on Earth 
but you would never see any of that like it would just be mentioned and it might have a there might be like a dot come up on a screen and yeah but that would be it with this or at least with what we're gonna i think term what we're gonna sort of temporarily call new issue yeah is that the goal now is to show not tell more mm-hmm. and i think that helps the episodes greatly not only do they look better they feel better from a story perspective and it also means you you can actually make more of your story yeah and have more time because you've got more to show shall we look into our character situation then uh, yeah probably the best call where do you want to where do you want to start then because what I'm liking so far is not so much one individual character; it's the dynamic between them. It's the ensemble, isn't it? Yes, it's the it's the ensemble because I feel as much as I liked the doctor or Hartnell's doctor Ian, Barbara, Susan, mm. and that ensemble felt like it had a team dynamic. I think within two stories, this Pertwee, Liz, Lethbridge trio mm. is really strong. Can I say one thing which does annoy me, though, about this di- group dynamic? Yeah, you can go for that. It's not really a group dynamic. It's what they do to Liz's character. So they build her up as being, like, this super scientist, like, physician. She's perfect. She knows about science and all that kind of stuff. Mm. But then when we get to the science bit, she's told to go and do the personnel files. Yeah, it's... I think the problem is with Liz's character is that whatever she can do yeah is 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 sort of undercut by the fact the doctor can do it yeah better than she can because he's the doctor yeah um Liz is very very helpful yeah in stages in this and sometimes she can make suggestions that are fantastically helpful and yeah. I like the way that's written so it's still like Liz is doing some things but I do agree that it's hard for her to be the character she would usually be in another situation. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, as much as I love Alistair Lethbridge Stewart, the misogyny, I think, is a beautiful part of his character, but it does affect the story somewhat. Yeah, it is. It comes very, out a good five times. It is very much a, a case serial. of Liz, you just stay there. I'm going to do action man stuff. We're going to deal with it. Yeah. His, his entire vibe is. Don't 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 worry, sweet child. The men are here. Yeah. It, it, and what happens to all of those men in this episode? Because the amount of men that die, unit are essentially just bullet sponges, aren't they? <laughs> they they just die instantly. I, I really don't want to look at the like they're, they're going through personnel files of this like underground bunker. I don't want to look at the personnel files of unit. Mm. Well. I don't think there really are any personnel files, mainly because I think their entire staff is killed every month. Yeah. Apart from, obviously, Alistair, who is in, who is trapped in a death curse where everyone he meets around him in his business is dead within a month. What's a turnover like? <laughs> I mean, it, it must be tough, like, putting out a unit job advert, you know. <laughs> How long's the contract? Not as long as you'd think. Two good references and... Good life insurance required. Mm. <laughs> have, you, have you got kids? Oh, yes, I do. Yeah, best, best not for you to take this one. Yeah, you could... The regular army's looking for some people, I think. They've probably got better life chances there. <laughs> the unit military strategy in this episode, as far as I can work out, is walk into caves to get done. Yeah, like... like they even leave one guy at one point by himself. Yes. 
And it's no surprise when he dies. No. It's strange. But, yeah, I think a lot of that can undercut Liz. But even despite that, I still think Mm. her character remains one of the stronger ones we've had. Yeah, it's it's definitely one of the strong strong female characters we've had. But that also isn't that difficult because we've had... I admit the bar's low. We've had some god-awful female characters. I do admit the bar's low. But the thing I like most about her is that she's very steadfast in what she thinks. Yeah. She, she, and she holds the line in that way. She's not afraid to put, go there and go, no, not not, not now. Yeah, she's, she speaks to the others as an equal. And usually what happens is by the end, they have to respect that she is, even if they don't necessarily want her to be. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think it does work in spite of some of the issues. So I'm liking Liz so far. Um, I mean, that's a issue we've sort of talked about already. One thing I will say about Nicholas Courtney is... I don't know why, but he has this remarkable sex appeal throughout this episode. Okay. I'm not messing around with it. It's just it's just weird. It's like he's got a very deliberate masculinity thing going on. Yeah. And it's really well considered by the actor. Like I can tell he's mm. thought of every movement of that character. And I don't know, this is probably because I watched Queen the other night, but I cannot imagine Freddie Mercury did not watch him and think I could do something like that. Because genuinely, they move really similarly. And, uh, this is just the thought I had when I was watching the story. I was like, yeah, there's there are similarities between these. And obviously, Lethbridge happened before Queen did. Right. Aside from your bizarre I fantasies... This a, no, this is a perfectly good point what, to make. I think it's interesting. What do you think is his, about his characterization in this story? Well... What I, the ending obviously does a lot of work on this, yeah. and and that's definitely worth talking about later. But I think the broad point of the episode was to show in all of the ways that the Doctor and Lethbridge Stewart are different, mm-hmm. and how sometimes their approaches can't really coalesce because they're just so polar. Yeah, that even if they tried to meet them, there were always going to be issues, and that I think there are just points that of, on which they are diametrically opposed. Which I think just adds more realism to their relationship rather than yes. more than anything. It's complex. Yeah. That's the most important thing. You, What it shows is the Doctor has a solution and Lethbridge Stewart has a solution. And in this story, neither of them is wrong I know, necessarily. The thing which I do like as well is that Lethbridge always seems like he's considering for Doctors. Yeah. Even though he doesn't always believe it, it's the right way. He's, he's prepared to wait a second and think. Yes, he, he doesn't go all guns blazing. And and I think the Doctor also considers Lethbridge Stewart as well. Yeah. And there is a meeting point where their their ambitions can match up. Mm. But the uh, the way this story goes sort of drives them further and further apart. And certainly by the end there's a there's a real moment where you know, and that's it's such an issue for the doctor morally is that he has to consider whether he can work with a person who has that in them. Shall we quickly talk about the doctor then, and then move yeah. on to that ending? Yeah, because we can move straight I, on to I the think, ending. I think it's a big point of discussion in this story. So yeah, um, John Pertwee is being slid right down the route of what if we took all of the things that people liked about the first yeah. two doctors. And matched them with essentially a seventies cop thriller character. Yeah, he he's a lot more actiony, isn't he? I mean, he's got a snake tattoo. 
Oh, on his arm. It's he. He he wears a plain shirt. He's got high high belted jeans, and he is a regular guy in a lot of ways with a frilly shirt. Yeah, right. It's frilly. There's still the uniqueness <laughs> there. Yeah, but it's definitely more grounded mm-hmm. than any Doctor we've had by a million miles. Oh, yeah. and it, and it adds a completely different dynamic to the show. So far, I'm liking how Pertwee's Doctor seems a lot more focused. He doesn't seem to be running around in circles a lot, unlike, say, what we had was, say, Troughton. Yeah, Troughton used to just sort of run around everywhere and be a bit excitable and animated, and and eventually he would... Sorry. Eventually he would get to a solution. Yeah. But Pertwee seems to know the solution very quickly, doesn't really waste time. Yeah, I think as well with Troughton, we've we've had lots of discussion about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. We're never quite sure whether Troughton means to get there. Mm. We know he does. We're never quite sure what... We know he he ends up there. Yeah, but we're never quite sure if he's deliberately there. Whereas with Pertwee's Doctor, it's very considered. Yeah. Everything seems thought out. Everything seems focused. Um, It's interesting to me that they've chosen to go in that direction Mm -hmm. and sort of, I guess, humanise the character. Well, I think that's kind of a condition of him being on Earth. He has to Mm. be able to be humanised. Humans need to be able to realise which he is human. Yeah. One of the theories I have for the way Pertwee acts so far, having watched these two episodes, Mm -hmm. is in reality... These problems with the unit aren't really too big of an issue for him. No. So he doesn't have to flap about because, well, this is just an Earth thing. Yeah. Compared to things which is might have previously done with, say, Ian and Barbara. Exactly. I mean, there's we've had some highly complex... You know, it's not like the Earth has been invaded by Daleks or that they're out on an alien planet five centuries from now. This is Earth in the 70s. Yeah, he knows what he's dealing with, essentially. Yeah. Okay, Salurians, that's an interesting one. Yeah. Obviously, I might have to do a bit of work to solve this, but, you know, the the end of the episode predicates around him finding a vaccine to an alien disease, and he does it in about 30 minutes. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things of... Unlike, say, Galaxy... Galaxy 4. Galaxy 4, that's the name of it, where he's been plunged into a completely unknown scenario in an unknown planet with two unknown alien species... He's dealing with a lot of knowns in this scenario. He knows what Earth in the 70s is like. He knows about Silurians. He knows about their particular methods. There's a lot of knowing here. Yeah, these things aren't major issues mm. for the character. And so, Pertwee doesn't have to be like Troughton. He can take things in a relatively measured way. In reality, he seems more annoyed by the situation than, than really worried about them. It's getting away him fixing Bessie. Yes. I do like Bessie. So do I. Yeah. And and our oh, Lishaw with the driving headscarf. It, it's a very caught in its time. Now, before we move on to the ending, which I know we're going to discuss, I want to quickly mention something to you. Mm. Everyone's favourite, well, I know you liked him, Dr. Lawrence. Oh, you want to talk about Dr. Lawrence now? Yes, because he's a special character. Please tell me there's there's a reason for this. There's a big special thing coming. His actor. Yeah, Peter Peter Miles. Yes. Do you know why Peter Miles is very important? Pray tell. This isn't his only Doctor Who episode. We'll see him again. 
two times in the future. But he as different characters. Yeah, as different yeah. characters. <laughs> but do you do you know what his final and biggest character was? What was it? It's not modern who, is it? No, it's not modern who. No, no. it's it's just stuck to classic. Yeah, it's stuck to classic. It's one of the biggest Doctor Who episodes ever made. Not in like like the trial of a time war, is he? Or uh Nope. Do you want me to help you narrow it down? Resurrection of the Daleks, Genesis of the Daleks. Genesis of the Daleks. Yeah. He is in Genesis of the Daleks. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. Do you know who he plays in Genesis of the Daleks? The Time Lords, he sends um, Tom Baker out. No, he plays an even bigger role. Rassilon. I forget if Rassilon's in that episode. No, he's not. What does he play? Neither. Oh! Oh! Oh, yeah! He's got that same voice. He, yeah. That's, that's that's Dr. Lawrence. Oh my god. Right. I I I as cuz we watched the last two episodes together. Mm. I was there going, do I tell him now or do I wait until the podcast? Oh, better to wait. That's what I decided. And get get me enthusiasm going. For for context and I think we can use Lawrence as the, actually we could probably use Lawrence as the jumping in point into this story to be yeah. honest. Yeah. Uh, cuz he is the director of a sort of elect, elect, nuclear research facility, isn't he? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, he is the big head honcho. He's in charge. This is his domain. He's annoyed about targets and things. Just a sort of typical management he, man. He's a stereotypical big baddie who wants to meet his goals. He wants to be big. He wants to be work hard. He yeah. wants to get all of it done. And by that extension, he's as human as human can be. Yes. One of the best side plots in this, ep- in this story as we realise that there's an alien race hidden underneath the station, harvesting its energy, and is you know, wants its planet back, is the annoyance by which Lawrence, despite all evidence to the contrary, brings things back to his damn research facility. The thing, thing is about him, though, right? He's a scientist. He knows which he needs to believe the evidence in front of him. Yes. And despite everything which is going on... Incontrovertible evidence. Like, people... Severely ill in the medical bay. Mm. Oh no, no, no! No, they're not. <laughs> this disease does not exist. It's a conspiracy against against me. There is a conspiracy against me, and you you are leading it. The, Doctor Lawrence is a master of bringing apps. Like he's got main character syndrome. Yeah, he brings everything back. <laughs> everything that's happening. There are people dying all over London. It's a conspiracy to remove me as the director of a small nuclear research facility. To be fair, I think that's partly hallucination because he was ill at that time with the, the True. plague. But even before the before plague, there's that, that yeah. sequence where um, he's talking to Liz and um, uh, they're talking about because they're getting compulsory injections to yeah. protect them against it. And uh, he does a perfect impression of uh, the social media app Telegram in yes. 50 years from then, uh, which he discusses against all evidence that there is no epidemic and that he isn't going to be taking those shots because why would he? Yes. Foreshadowing. Yes. After living for an actual pandemic, which wasn't as bad as this one here. No, no. But it is a lot of foreshadowing of how one person just causes mayhem and it very quickly leaves for base country and goes to France. Yes, it was. I mean, it's not like um, the study of pandemics only occurred very, very recently. I mean, no. we'd had, you know, the Spanish flu 50 yeah. years before that, which had been in 
even worse than COVID, really, in terms of death. Mm. Um, but I did watch that sequence thinking, well, that feels about right yeah. from, from the way we lived through, well, still living through COVID. Going off that quickly, you've just reminded me about a about a docudrama series which got released. Do you know about this? Uh, you have to fill this in. So, for me, there's a lot of docudrama series. So BBC went for a phase, I think mid-noughties, where they were making, like, disaster oh. docudramas. Oh, no, 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 I know about these. I know about these, yeah. And, like, for one which, I re- which I've watched and was really good was the um, f- everything, all of the transport system around London has completely f- cocked up. And yes. it ends with people dying. And yes, they, I watched that one. They've they've done a similar one with a pandemic. And, and this was in the mid-noughties, I'm yeah. supposing, yeah. Yeah, and it was a similar sort of thing. I've never watched it because, quite frankly, I discovered these in the middle of lockdown. And I thought... Yeah, I watched the transport one in like, the middle of the night. You know, that kind of yeah. rabbit hole time. Yes. It must have been one, two in the morning. And I watched it thinking, oh, that plane's crashed. That ain't good. Yes. <laughs> in the middle of the night in COVID <laughs> lockdown. Yeah, it, it was one of those things of like... Watching the Titanic at home, perfect film. Yeah, watching the Titanic on your cruise holiday. <laughs> Slightly terrifying. There's a there's a YouTuber who once said proudly that he watches uh, plane crash documentaries before he goes on flights. Would you do that? No, particularly <laughs> not when you're on the flight. Be like, what are you doing <laughs> with Titanic? You're like, you're like just watching seconds from disaster. A plane can go up easily. Where am I? Would you please fasten your seatbelt and prepare for takeoff? I mean, I already have, when I'm in, in a plane, all of the accident stuff, stories I know about planes yeah, going through my head. Yeah, they go through your head. But yeah. Back to the story. <laughs> yeah, um, actually, this is a complete doubt. Let me will, because on the flight here, I had to, they sat me, and you know the emergency exits are in the middle of the plane? Yes. So they sat me in one of those rows, and so they had to give us like a special talk. Uh, yeah, so if, if you've ever been sat in an emergency exit, I hadn't before, but I'm sure you've had this happen. Um, this this fellow from Cabin Crew comes up and says, um, "Just a heads up. Just heads up. You're in the emergency exit, yeah. so you all need to be aware that you will be expected to know how to open the doors in an event of an emergency, as you will be responsible for everyone getting out." Did you know how to open the doors? It was sort of like there are instructions on the doors, and I looked at them. There was two instructions. I went, "All right, do fit in and fall out." I doubt it's that hard to. I'm going to take a guess. And it's, you really some, would think there's that... some sort of turning in that. There's some sort of pulling or pushing. <laughs> yeah, it's basically as far as I could work out. There was like a top lever. Yeah, and you push that in, and then you just pulled from there. Because mm. realistically, you can't make emergency exit doors that are difficult to open. Right? No. That feels very counterproductive. Anyway, um, much like we didn't want to pull that lever, let's pull ourselves out of this rabbit hole. That's surprisingly smooth. <laughs> It was god-awful. What are you on about? <laughs> it was obviously rubbish, have, like, have, but have as I segues t- go. Have I tired you out so much you just accept my segues? We've walked a lot today, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so once we have Lawrence being mad and the researchers are being probed by units, that's when we realise that what... But what, just, just, just for the introduction of why are unit there? Why are unit there? Do you not know? Or are you being I, deliberately... I sort obscure? of half remember. It was... um, essentially, this facility is having reports of bizarre mental oh, occurrences. Oh, yeah, people with are, the, like, paranoid. With, with, there's a lot of employee turnover. There's a lot of employee turnover. Um, someone went into the caves, came back with, like, his prehistoric man. 
And also they're getting a lot of sudden power drains as they yeah. turn on things. So essentially unit gets sent in. Dr. Lawrence is not happy. No. He 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 wants them out. They're getting where they're stopping them from reaching their targets and making sure which they can get everything done. Yes, stepping on his turf. Yes. So then, as James saying, we get through the whole thing of that. We yeah. discover which there are not humans in the cave or pipes. There are Silurians in the caves and pipes. But this time, it's all right because we realise that very early on. Is that a reference by any chance to a certain episode? No. One of the, one of the things in the first episode that comes up is... Um, the Doctor is basically told that there is a guy who went down into caves, like you're saying, yeah. and has come out a little bit backward. And we find out that he's his mind has reverted back millions of years. To which, prehistoric man. Yes, which is never really explained how that would work and isn't really brought up again. It is. Like, it doesn't come up towards the end. It's sort of like a forgotten point. It gets brought up twice. Yeah, when is it brought up? So it's brought up at, at that initial stage, but then it's also brought up later on because unit... Essentially, the Doctor gets himself trapped because he's the Doctor. Yeah, the Doctor... It goes in and out of these Silurian traps for the whole episode. It does about five circuits. Um, Unit go in there to try to save him. The Doctor says which they're going to come. So the Silurians trap them into a massive air bubble. And then one of the soldiers also goes mad, goes back to cave painting mode. Mm. Yeah, that's true. So I think it's... My, my assumption, based on the fact which is having an effect on people around it, the Silurians have some sort of like... Whether it's the effect of their power type, because they're on about microwaves a lot. Yeah, microwave energy. So I don't know if it's some sort of effect which they naturally give off or something which they're just generating sort of like a byproduct. Mm. Because you need to remember, back when they were wandering around, men were apes. They would say that repeatedly. Yes. Yeah, I mean, they refer to them as apes all the time. It's it's just something that's not carefully thought out. You think it's been put in there to be like a, a mystery, definitely. Yeah. And it works, like at the start of the story where you're questioning what's going on. But certainly once we discover that it's Silurians and we know what the threat is, it doesn't get explained further than that and sort of feels like a rope point when it does happen. Yeah. And it's it's mainly because the story just moves on into a lot of different avenues and kind of drops things from before. Um, quickly, the Silurians uh, try, once they realise they might have a chance of getting their way back up, they form an alliance with one of the Doctors. And this is one of the big driving forces of the early episodes, is their, is their little partnership with Dr. Quinn, a certain Dr. Yes. Quinn. What did you think of Dr. Quinn? Because he plays quite a big role, certainly in the early and middle parts of the story. You say which Dr. Lawrence is very maxable. I think Dr. Oh, Quinn... Oh, Dr. Quinn's right there. ...is, is more maxable, like, because he's going for this goal which he wants. It's, it's never really specified, is it, what 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 he wants in he exchange. He wants knowledge. He wants knowledge. We don't really know what knowledge it is. But he continues to think which Silurians will give it to him, despite it becoming increasingly present, which he, they're just killing people, which is very similar to Maxwell and the Daleks. Yes, it is. It's Maxwell thinking, well, of course, I... He, he's Maxwell's in a position where he believes that he has power over the Daleks for some reason yeah. or other. Um, and that they simply have to give him the secret. And they've never really told him they even have it. I, I think... I think it's slightly different. Max, but I think was a lot more cynical, a lot more thought out about it. Yes. And Mr. Qu- and Dr. Quinn seems to be a lot more... I just want that. I don't want people to get hurt. Well, Maxwell seems fully into people getting hurt. Yeah, Maxwell doesn't care. That's what I love about Maxwell is that he really didn't care. Yeah. He just wanted to know how to get that goal. 
Um, what Quinn reminded me more of was you remember Team of the Simon Men? Yes. You remember the guy from the Logicians? Yes. Who would go in and it was just like, well, they have to give us this knowledge because we freed the Cybermen yes. from their tombs. And they were like, no, we fucking don't. <laughs> we have absolutely no obligation to do whatever. Yeah. To be fair, I still think it's more Maxwell, like, because in that, in that, yeah. that, that position, the Logicians guy never gets told. He just kind of assumes. Yeah. But in this scenario, Dr. Quinn is told... We will give you knowledge. Whether we don't really get that. No. It, it, Quinn seems to believe that if he helps the Silurians, he will be held back. And everyone around us, I mean, we even see his wife for quite a bit of the episode saying, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. You have time to stop. And him just yeah. getting madder and madder and madder and more driven by this pursuit of a intangible knowledge. And then they die. Yeah, and then they die. Um, there's a lot of that <laughs> in this story. The Silurians get through some bodies. One thing I've realised: doesn't essentially every side character in this die? Yeah, because yeah, we have Major Baker at the beginning. Which yeah, is Major like, Baker's like which a- is essentially their security guard in the in the science area. Yeah. He gets infected as patient zero with the Silurian virus and dies. Yeah, Dr. Quinn dies. Yeah, he gets killed by Silurians. Um, I don't think he... The woman doctor is his wife, but the woman doctor dies. I've completely forgotten the name. Uh, I think it might have been Doris. Yeah, she, like she dies. Yeah. Um, Dr. Lawrence Yeah, dies. gets infected, tries to go left with shirt, has a cardiac arrest and dies. Um, the government civil servant. Yep, dies. He dies. He's patient zero for the rest of the world. Yeah, that's Masters, isn't it? Yeah, Masters' he, name. Yeah, he tries to get out, basically, yeah. and infects everybody else. Um, yeah, everyone dies in this episode. Who? Yeah, yeah, actually, all of them do. <laughs> like, unless you were a main. A companion-esque character of a doctor. Or you were a sort of nameless Nameless technician. background character. Even, Hell, most of the nameless even them died. die. This isn't a very cheery episode, is it? Basically. I um, mean, even, even the Silurians die at the end. <laughs> yeah, the Silurians get genocided back. So Everyone dies. So this episode is the, is the I've won but at what cost meme of Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah, everyone dies. So let's... I think we've discussed most of the major plot points here at some point, in some order. In some order, yeah. So, to, to give a brief recap, get to the facility, everyone's having nightmares and a bit mental, find a man with a prehistoric mind, that's because the Silurians are down there trying to plow up, they form an alliance with Quinn, Quinn wants knowledge from them, so he helps them, but then he gets more into knowledge, so he traps one of them, and turns against them to try and get the Whoa. knowledge, which is a bad idea. Yep. He dies. Doctor realises that the Silurians aren't you know, just lizards like he thinks they are at the start and recognises that they're an intelligent race and tries to negotiate with them and that's where... Hand up. I've just realised, on about something with ropes which have no end and they forget about it, Mm. you've just reminded me, whatever happens to that dinosaur? (laughs) That's a good question, actually. They they, they set this up... Do you want to explain to the the listeners what happens here? They set it up as they're being... Sort of like the intelligent Silurians, humanoids, sort of similar sort of 
strength and kind of stuff to humans. Yeah, they're just reptiles. Me- similar sort of mental power, potentially a bit more. And then kind of as like a pet slash guard dog, they've got this dinosaur, which is in, I'm going to say, first two, three episodes. Yeah, the dinosaur is what we see in that first cliffhanger. Yeah. Isn't it? And then nothing. Mm. Yeah, there are some interesting Silurian attacks generally. In this, like there was the barn yeah. one. Yeah. In a Quinn's barn. No, it wasn't Quinn's barn. Who was, was that? It was that farmhand, wasn't it? Yeah, the yeah, he, he he gets absolutely wrecked. <laughs> yeah. Um Yeah, sorry, continue. That's fine. Yeah. Um yeah, there was that dinosaur, but I think that was just it was like I was saying before, there's a lot of threads that get dropped by yeah. yeah, there's a lot of threads that get picked up but dropped because they get distracted by other things. Yeah. I think what well, the the story tries to do a lot and sometimes loses sight of where it is. Yeah. But that doesn't stop it from from being very entertaining, and from a thematic perspective, which is I, can't, I think what I want to talk about next, actually, it's very consistent throughout. It's yeah. the question of is it better to coexist, I suppose, or get along with a fighting force as opposed yeah. to going the war route? Mm-hmm. Because in the end, the real tragedy of the episode is probably it could have been solved with a lot less loss. Hmm. And a lot, and a lot fewer lives being ended. But the reason that happens is because people don't listen. And I suppose in that respect, they kind of had to drum up the death to bring that point in. So, what was the ending then? We've, we've referenced it a yeah, lot. We, have, we haven't we've, really we've discussed talked about it. it. So, once we get to the final episode, um, the doctor has figured out a vaccine for this uh, disease. The Silurians have released. That's fine. Problem is, the Silurians have captured him, and they now have a different plan. They want him to install a molecular disperser that will, in broad strokes, dissolve the layer protecting the Earth from the sun's radiation, thereby making the planet too hot for humans, but perfectly hot enough for Silurians. Meaning they can just sort of slither up and take control back. Doctor hatches a plan, makes him think he's going to do it, crashes the reactor... Um, eventually fixes that and tells everyone, right, they're going to go back into hibernation now. We're just going to leave them there. So I've got two points I need to make here. Yeah. One will bring around this episode in a nice circle. We can end this podcast. Yep. The other one is an interesting point about this ending. Okay. Point one. Point one. Done. You got notes. No. That's not notes, is it? No. How long are those? So, the ending. That's way too professional. The ending. I've now lost what I was going to say in my notes because you started intimidating me. (laughs) You've intimidated me so much. No. Right, the ending. What What would you say if I told you that ending wasn't as it was originally meant to be. I would ask you what it was originally meant to be. So it meant to be the exact same kind of ending. They get blown up. But the Doctor wasn't initially angry. I see. That's interesting. So it meant... It was definitely, I'm definitely happy they changed that. Yeah, because I think it brings around the story in a big circle. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely the right decision to change it from there. Interesting that that was how it was originally, though. Yeah. 
So, so was so. I suppose if that was the ending they'd wanted to go with initially, perhaps they were thinking it was an episode where the Doctor was going to become more Lethbridge-like. Yeah, it's a weird one, isn't it? Which is odd, but I suppose they went the opposite way and decided to make him very to, can, to really draw a line in the sand. I, I think you can kind of see why that was done by the story editor rather than the story writer, because the yeah. story editor wants to kind of keep the Doctor on the path, which is sort of. Kind of the righteous path. For righteous path, of like a the path which path. won't massively screw over his character. Yeah. The Doctor is the peace character and Lethbridge Stewart is the war character. I mean, he is a soldier. Yeah. It's simple as that. We know he is. We know what his background is. Point number two. Point number two, James. I don't think Lethbridge Stewart did very well here. No. I don't think he killed them all. <laughs> It's because the series come back, don't they? Not just back, but on schedule. Hmm. One second, I've lost it in the notes again. Give me one second. There we go. This pro- this it was broadcast in nineteen seventy. Now, how how long in the future? It's fifty years. Fifty years. And you're about to tell me because I know where you're going with this. Isn't the Chibnall two-parter in Wales? Which is why this is such a round-off set in 2020. Yes. I We've thought done it was, the loop. Yes, they there did the loop. So, yeah. The thing is, though, that's in a completely different way. Although, I suppose they never specify where the plant no. is. No, it's probably just a massive coincidence, but, you know, it's a fun yeah. way to I, bring I it I think circle. what it is, it's, it's, it's credit to Chibnall. Yeah. He's watched the classics and made a smart reference. Yes. And one that if you... Because I'd never even thought of that, but obviously if you dig in for it, you can find yeah. it. Is this the second piece of credit I'm going to give Chris Chibnall in a Doctor Who podcast? That's a really good, good reference. Yep, and before he can change his mind on that, we will be finishing this episode. <laughs> Out of turn, how much do you give this episode? Um, well, seven-parter, Silurians, uh, seven. Ooh. It's solid, but I agree it's too long. It should be six episodes max. Yeah. You've got quite a lot of drag, particularly in like episode four or five. Um, and while I think the ending is good... Mm-hmm. And certainly raises some questions. It's going to be interesting to see where they go from that. I think it's a show that, at the moment, if you're looking at newish Who as a whole, the strong points are ready. Yeah. Like, we know what the strengths are, but they're trying to iron out the weaknesses and, and streamline things. Yeah. yeah. But I think if, if this series keeps on going to this standard, it's going to be one of my favourites. Because I think good. the first two have been good. What about you, Owen? I'm probably going to say around the same, with the same sort of problems, around seven. The episode... It doesn't even feel like it drags. It doesn't even feel like it, like as we were saying. It it's always like, watchable. It doesn't feel like it's missing. It it needs parts cut out. There's just sometimes you'll be watching an episode and it feels like it's gone on for an hour, mm. and it's only gone for twenty minutes, which is problematic. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, it's still a good story, so I don't want to mark it down. Yes, I think it's definitely a watchable episode. Yes, and, and if you choose to watch Doctor Two and the Slurrens, I think you'll have a good time with it. So if you've got three hours spare or you want to watch it in parts on a week, it's probably worth your time. Exactly. So, as the time of you watching that episode begins... Oh, God. The you time of this... That. <laughs> I saw you reach, mentor. I could see it on your face. This is what you gain from, from in-person recordings. You can make these observations. This is much better. <laughs> 
the time of this podcast has sadly come to a close. So if you want to talk to us about the Silorians and your views on this episode, feel free to tweet us at Black Archive Pod, or you can Gmail email us. Gmail us. <laughs> you can email us at blackarchivepod at gmail.com yes please do get in touch uh, especially because you can let me know what the name of that um, Silurian was in the Paternoster Gang it's completely out of my head I've, I've tried to say it about four times in this episode and I've completely forgotten it so if you enjoy this podcast please remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts uh, yes we will be back at some point soon with the next one so the next episode is the Ambassadors of Death. The Ambassadors we, of Death. We're dealing with some spaceships coming back down from Earth, but are they as we expect them to be? Who knows? Find out next week or whenever the next one comes out. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>